0: road trip, gone 600 miles yesterday, got home last night near midnight, went to bed, didn't unpack, came to church. I I like that kind of commitment. And so it's good to come together every week to worship and to hear the Word of God proclaimed. Most of you know, as Pastor Chris said, we are in this little book of 2 Peter. And now that you're all comfortable, I'm going to have you stand and I'm going to read Stand in honor of the Word of God. This is the portion that we'll be looking at today, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through the middle of verse 10. It is very powerful, relevant, and provocative, and I'm going to try my best to do justice to God's holy Word as I preach. But false prophets also arose among the people. <coughs> Excuse me. Just as there will be false teachers among you, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You may be seated. I was visiting in the eastern part of the state a couple years ago, when I went to one of my relatives' homes and uh, I, I was looking around, I love books, and I happened to spy a book that was sitting on the coffee table. looked very interesting. And she told me how good it was. Now, she is a Bible believing believer like we are, and I just had a feeling like maybe this book wasn't that good. And so I bought a copy of it and I read it. And I was amazed at how off base that it was. And so I'm going to bring a few samples from this book to you right now and listen to a few of these word-for-word quotes from this book. What the Bible says are the words of Israel and the early church, not God's Word. A close and careful reading of the Bible makes it impossible to think that what it says comes directly or indirectly from God. A moment's reflection suggests that the Ten Commandments are also a human product. The point is not that the Ten Commandments are unimportant. Rather, the point is that their human origin origin is apparent. The Bible is all a human product, though generated in response to God. Speaking of the Bible as the Word of God has often led Christians to see the Bible as coming from God. By now, it's obvious that the lenses I am prescribing for reading the Bible do not see it that way. And in the words of the NASA program, Houston, we've got a problem. Something is wrong there. And this is one of those books that people are reading and thinking are really, really cool. It's modern teaching. But when you heard that little sample, and the whole book was like this. When you heard that little sample, it flies in the face of what Peter said last week when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 about the origin of Scripture. It came from where? God, it did not come from man. And here's this guy saying, all of the Bible is from man. And there are many, many books out there distorting the truth of the Word of God. You say, well, what what is the name of this book? It is Reading the Bible Again, as for the first time, by Marcus Borg. Do not waste your time reading that book. I already wasted mine. We're in a very relevant and provocative series. And Peter has an issue or two on his mind. The first issue that we looked at was this issue of true Christian character, chapter 1. And Peter said, if you really want to look like Christ, if you really want to grow, you got to add seven things to your faith. The second issue that he looked at with us was last week, the origin of the Bible. Where did it come from? And the third issue that he's looking at today with us is this whole issue of false teachers. It is intensely serious. It is very direct. It is cautionary, and it is an issue in the church whether you realize it or not. And so he spends all of one chapter on this issue of false teachers, and I will deal with half of it today, half of it next week. So we're going to get into our passage and see what Peter has to say about this pervasive and continuing problem of false teachers. And the big idea that we're going to see today is found in the first 10 verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. It's this we can successfully escape the dangerous influence of false teachers. There is a way that we don't have to be captured and captivated and swayed by what false teachers have to say that sounds so good today in our modern society. And so he gives us spiritual insight. And he gives us a way out, a doorway out of a trap to escape the dangerous influence of false teachers and, by implication, their fate. So we're going to look at three ways that we can escape false teachers today. Listen up. I think it's going to be very important. And as I said before, it's a very serious tone today. Hang in there with me because it's a very serious issue. The first point, how to escape. We can escape false teachers by realizing the constant threat of false teachers. They are around. In fact, 1 Peter chapter uh, 2 verse 1 says false teachers arose false prophets arose among the people that's in Israel in the Old Testament and then he says just as there will be false teachers among you in the church Peter is warning the church look out for false teachers they are always there somewhere and he's not alone in this Paul would say time and again look out for false teachers how about Acts chapter 20 and verse 30, for instance? He said, "From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And guess who else chimes in on this? Jesus said, "In the last days there will be false teachers, and others in the New Testament said, We are in the last days, and if they said we were in the last days, we're 20 centuries closer to the last days than they were. We are in the last days, and there will be." false teachers. And Peter is so on target. And so you go into the Old Testament and you find prophets who are giving false messages. And the amazing thing is the church was founded in AD chapter 30, excuse me, AD chapter 30, chapter 2 of Acts, AD 33. And within 15 years you have these heresies creeping in, things like Gnosticism and the Galatian heresy. And you can write those down and look them up online. They had infiltrated the church. And false teaching all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament to our present-day false teachers have always been there. So let me give you this little brief review. False teachers hit the church hard in the first number of centuries. And so by the third and fourth centuries of the church's existence, they had to call big convocations, They had to call church councils to make declarations of true theology against the false teaching that was there. And you wonder, well, what were these teachings? Well, let me give you a little grocery list. You don't have to write them down, but just so you understand what was in the past. Things like Arianism, Modalism, Docetism, Sabellianism, Montanism, Marcionism, and a whole bunch more. And by the way, the false teaching became known as heresy. And heresy is simply the twisting of the revealed truth of Scripture. And as someone put that, heresy is preserving the appearance of Christianity but contradicting its essence. And we won't even know that's what's going on. And so even though the church took decisive action against all of these heresies, false teaching continued. So we fast forward. America was born, an 18th century movement was afoot in Europe and America called the enlightenment. And this is supposedly when our minds woke up and they kicked into gear and people started using their reason to look at the world and its issues and religion and tradition and the roles of those things like religion and tradition became suspect, which paved the way for a movement called modernism in the 19th and 20th centuries when reason became the primary basis of authority all the way from science to religion and ideas of God intervening in the affairs of humanity and holding us accountable to a moral standard fell at the feet of rationalism. And modernism became a crisis in the American church as many began to explain away the true miraculous nature of things in the Bible and rationalism took hold which spawned a movement in the 20th century known as fundamentalism, which was essentially a war against the liberalism and rationalism of that day in churches and in universities that were founded on Christian principles. And then another movement came out of the fundamentalistic movement called evangelicalism, a less pugilistic kind, where there was a gentler approach to keeping the doctrine and the truth in check, and we at Old North are basically in the evangelical camp. When I was trained in the 60s and 70s, I was confident at that time that evangelicalism would never be in a slippery slope to all kinds of uh, false teaching and, and, and kind of... Sneaking in those kinds of things, I thought it was all safe. Was I ever wrong? There are in the evangelical camp, theologians and pastors teaching and writing books that challenge sound historic theology in areas that I believe are core and non-negotiable. Areas of the nature of the Bible and where it came from. Some of the attributes of God. The nature of salvation and hell and creation and the miraculous. There are teachings in the evangelical camp that are subtly challenging the historic orthodox viewpoint that lasted through our movement for centuries. And so I don't want our church, Old North Church, to be on a slippery slope of doctrinal error that is dressed up as theology come of age. I'm a strong proponent of, in the words of Jude 3, that we must contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that is the church, And so, we must take Peter's words to heart. Among the people of God in every era will be people who will tell false things, false doctrine, false teaching, and they will come at the message of the gospel and the message of the scriptures, and they will tamper with its message. And that is inevitable. The reality is, every church, including Old North, must keep its guard up. The possibility is likely that by influence of a book, TV, radio, seminar, pastor, seminary, professor, some teacher in the church, error will creep in, and there's never a time we can let down our guard. So, the first way we escape false teaching is to realize that in some form, it never Goes away okay are you with me the way you escape it is to be aware that it is around now we move to the second major point we can escape false teachers by understanding the characteristics of false teachers false teachers basically are hard to recognize they don't come to church with this big sign on their chest saying hi church I am a false teacher they don't do it that way they come and they're so smooth and they're so likable and they get involved in the hierarchy of the church and they blend in, they're winsome. And if you don't understand what you're looking for, you might completely overlook them. And so Peter gives us a sample of false teaching, false teachers. And by the time we get to it next week, he really gives a resume that kind of shakes us to the core but he gives us this sample of four characteristics that we should look at and look for when it comes to false teachers. And so here's the first characteristic. False teachers are secretive. Verse 1, Peter says they will secretively bring in destructive heresies. They start out silently. They are secret. Why wouldn't they? They don't want to be exposed. They want to get their agenda out there, so they do it by stealth. And the Word of God says that they secretly introduce their false teaching. The Greek word there means to bring alongside the existing by stealth. And so there are things that we hold, and then they'll bring this little thing in that's wrong, and they'll they'll add it to it, and before we know it, they tweak something like the sovereignty of God and free will, or foreknowledge, that is. And so there is an error among God's people. Now, some people find teaching like this so intriguing, and they're wand to it, and other people say, you know, something doesn't quite sound right here, and they start to investigate a little bit. But once they get a foothold, once they're allowed to have that teaching grab a hold of people, Peter says it can get extreme. Well, how extreme might it get? Peter says. It says they will even deny, in verse um, uh, 1, the master Who bought them? What do we see in the third and fourth centuries? We saw false teaching about the master who bought them, that he wasn't the son of God, that he didn't come in the flesh. And the church had to come against those false teachings about the nature of our Savior and our master. And some of those teachings survive to our present day. Most noteworthy are the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who are basically resurrections of these 3rd and 4th centuries that the church censured back at that time. We've got to be very careful about these things. And so, someone might wonder, well, what could be so bad about a different take on doctrines like that? What is the harm? That's why Peter says in verse 1 that this kind of stuff is destructive heresy. Destructive heresy. What are we talking about? How could it be destructive? Let me give you two examples. This kind of teaching has ruined families and churches, split them, caused them to be angry at each other, and almost disown each other. That is destructive. All the way to the secondary of destruction. This can be the ruination of a person's soul for eternity. That is destructive. And Peter says, You've got to watch out for this, it's very dangerous. And so it doesn't come to the church in full flower. It comes as a silently planted seed. Unless it is checked, it'll grow up and then become a very dangerous weed among God's people. So characteristic number one, it sneaks in by stealth, secret. Characteristic number two of false teachers is that they are charismatic. Verse 2 says they draw many people. Many people come. Now, I'm not using the word charismatic here that so they have all the gifts of the Spirit and that kind of thing. I'm using the word charismatic because they've got magnetic personalities. They know how to draw people. And so they have this inebriating appeal. And verse 2 says, many will follow them. They have the ability to track large, loyal crowds. Now, I've often been amazed at this phenomenon. And, and, and the Bible is so true about this. Have you ever watched some TV and you saw some of these false teachers and you would see all the crowds out there and you see all the antics that were going on and you say, how would anybody ever follow them? And yet they do. It is amazing. And here's something else that's been amazing to me. Over my career, I've been amazed at this. If I get up in the pulpit and I say something a little unusual... Or I say something that people don't agree with, I hear about it. But these false teachers, oh, they think, boy, this is just great stuff. And people follow them by the droves. I don't know how they get away with it. Peter says they do. But it's not just about their appeal and their draw. Peter moves into some more dangerous characteristics now. Characteristic three and four. Listen to these. Characteristic number three, false teachers are often involved in immoral sin, in verse 2. At some point, many of these false teachers will start to show a crack in their lifestyle. And they're not living above board. They're living below into some kind of immoral lifestyle. And Peter says that they are involved in sensuality. That word sensuality basically means sexually immoral indulgence and licentiousness. They are involved in things that are wrong according to the flesh. Now you might be wondering, well, how could false teachers sink to this level, that they be involved in immoral things with their teaching? Well, there are at least two reasons. Number one, false teachers in full flower are devoid of the Spirit of God. And when you don't have the Spirit of God in your heart, keeping you from the kinds of things through conviction that you should stay away from, you're a sitting duck to it. But the second thing is that many of these false teachers, they teach a wrong concept of grace. And the apostle Paul had to come against that at some point. Romans chapter 6, they've been pulled out of all kinds of sin, and Paul says, yeah, I've been hearing some of you say that, hey, maybe we ought to keep on sinning because God's grace is so amazing. And Paul, in the strongest of negative Greek constructions, says, are you telling me that you want to sin so grace may may abound? He says, "Far far be it from it, absolutely not. Never. In the strongest way he could say it. Several decades ago, there was a movement in a Christian organization that was national. And part of what they were teaching was the grace of God in this respect. Well, you know, if you want to do some things that you shouldn't do in a romantic relationship, that's wrong, yeah, but uh, go ahead and do it anyway, and God will forgive you. The grace of God will cover that. And I remember thinking about that 30, 40 years ago. I couldn't believe that was going on. But that was a misteaching on grace that led people into a moral failure. And Peter is saying these false teachers will be full of moral failures and you need to watch out for them. And when there's hanky-panking going along with the false teaching, it is really, really bad. Now the fourth fourth thing Peter says is, not only are they sensual, they are after something else. They are after your money. And so he talks about the wallet here. Characteristic number four, false teachers are greedy, verse three. Eventually, when they tell these false teachings, they will also come for your hard-earned money. And verse three says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That word exploit is a Greek word that means to make money, which took on a negative form. It means to make a profit by deception for personal gain. And so there you are, making your hard-earned money. You're coming listen to these teachers that really are intriguing, and eventually they're going to make it right for your wallet while they are living in the lap of luxury and flying these big planes all over the world. And it's a bad, sad situation. And so there you have it, four characteristics to introduce the false teachers. Now, I want you to know that these may not be evident in full flower, They may not be there, you may not see them, but you have to realize that they go from the beginning, where it starts to secrecy, all the way out to flat, indulgent lifestyle. And there's a point in this whole thing. The point is this, you don't wait until you see all four things in full flower. You get there early and you start to deal with the first signs of false teaching. And I want you to know something that is going to be so reassuring. At Old North, our pastors and our elders are committed to make sure that when we step up here to preach, we will preach the Word of God as it is. And the second thing we promise to do is to keep our guard up for false teaching. And our elders are very much keyed into that. In fact, we believe that some of the top things that elders are supposed to do is look out for false teaching, and we are constantly on our guard on your behalf. Isn't that good news? We're watching out for this kind of thing. So, we've seen that false teachers, not only are they always around, but two, they have signs that you can spot. Which leads me to the third major point about how to escape false teachers. We can escape false teachers by believing that God knows how to rescue us from them, and God is in control. And we're going to see this whole section here about false teachers and the ungodly that God had to judge, but he knew how to take the ungodly from that situation and protect them and help them to escape. And that's what he's trying to bring home to us right now. And so what you're going to see in this text is four examples of God's dealing with sin and, as it were, false teachers, and we get an understanding about how God views this, how God is so severe against ungodliness and false teaching that he has to judge it. But then God says, if you are willing to stand out from the crowd and have your heart maintain its righteousness before the Lord, then the Lord will make sure that when he has to deal with an issue, he will take care of you. So let's look at these four if examples that I'm calling them and see what happens. If example number one is in verse 4, the sinning angels. And here's what Peter says in verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what in the world is Peter talking about? Well, you know, when you hit a blind wall in the Bible, you look at other places where the Bible talks about it, and guess what? We've got Jude talking about the same thing in nearly the same language. And Jude 6 is talking about angels who left their proper dwelling, who now are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment, just like Peter said. Now, what's going on? Now, there are different schools of thought here. My interpretation is that he's going back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And the idea there, as some look at it, including me, is that we're talking about some of the sons of God, which another name for angels, that sin grievously by sexual relationships with human women. And so now it's back to verse 4 of 2 Peter. When Peter chimes in that they were cast into hell. Now, we had talked about hell a few weeks ago. Gehenna was the Greek. This is a different word. It's Tartarus. And Tartarus is basically a deep pit or abyss in hell by which very wicked and rebellious angels are confined until the final judgment. And so what we have here... No matter what their situation was in reality. Angels who sinned grievously against God and they had a special judgment. Now understand that the angels who fell with Satan are still free to roam, the demons. But these angels are locked up because God judged them. The second if example is found in verse 5. If example 2. And Peter draws once again from Genesis. This time chapters 6 through 8. And verse 5 he says... God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, there are many who say, ah, that is just a myth. There wasn't a real flood. Peter gives us no hint that that's the case. In fact, he's building on what he leads us to believe, history, as a case that when God saw the immorality, ungodliness of a society, he judged it in severity. Now, verse 6 is example number 3. If example number three is Sodom and Gomorrah, and Peter takes us to Genesis 19 for this one this time, and he says in verse 6 that God's judgment was so severe by turning Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes by fire and brimstone that they would be extinct. Now, isn't this interesting? Archaeologists go over to the Middle East, they look for Sodom and Gomorrah, they know the region, but they can't find it. God's judgment was so severe that they were made extinct. And we can't find the exact location. But why does Peter say all this about Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6? That they were an example, that they would keep the false teachers and ungodly, make them see that they would not do that kind of thing, but they wouldn't repent. And so it was an example of God's judgment. Now, if example number 4 is in verses 7 and 8. The rescue of Lot. It says in verse four, excuse me, example four, that Lot was rescued. If Sodom and Gomorrah were rescued, then God, know, uh, were judged, then God knows how to rescue the righteous. And God literally rescued Lot. So there you have four examples. If God judged the angels, if God sent the flood, If God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, if he rescued Lot, then, then God knows how to rescue the godly from that kind of judgment. Now that's awesome truth. That if God knows how to deal with the wicked, he also knows how to deal with the godly. And he's appealing to his church that we be godly people. That when God has to judge, we would not be judged along with the wicked. And there is a way out and a way through. And you might be wondering, well, how do we do this? Well, God says he knows how to rescue us from some really bad stuff, including the temptation to believe and follow the false teachers, that God will rescue us. Now, the question is, how? Well, it doesn't tell us, but we've got some help from the text. And there are three factors that will show us how God will rescue the godly in times of difficulty. Factor one is precedent. It says, if God sent a flood but rescued Noah, it says, if God destroyed the cities but rescued Lot, then the precedent is, if he did it for them, he'll do it for you. And so it's a faith-building thing that he's talking to us about here. If God rescued them, he will rescue you most assuredly. But there's a second factor in rescuing the godly from judgment, and it's this. There needs to be righteousness among God's people. If there's godliness, he rescues. If we end up mirroring the world, he won't rescue us. And so God is saying, if we are going to be rescued, we need to be like Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. If we're going to be rescued, we need to be like Lot in verse 7. Now, I want you to see some things that we don't see in the Old Testament about Lot. And I want to challenge you to godly living right now because I would never want to see anyone judged along with the world because they got caught in the world system. Look at verse 7. It says that God rescued righteous Lot. And we learn something about Peter here that Genesis doesn't tell us. And verse 7 says that Lot was greatly distressed by the immoral excesses of the wicked, That word means that he was worn out and oppressed over it. I wonder how many of us are worn out and oppressed over the excesses of wickedness in our culture. Lot was, and God noticed that. But look at verse 8. It says that day after day, the righteous soul of Lot was tormented by the unprincipled or wicked deeds that he saw and heard all around them. And that word tormented means severe mental anguish, severe mental stress. The sin in his society caused him all kinds of anguish as he saw the wickedness there. And I had to ask myself the question, I wonder how many lots there are in the church these days. I wonder how many of us are tormented by the sin we see in our culture. And it is out there. I wonder how many of us have anguish over what's on television these days. But here's the problem. The average American Christian, the conscience has been seared, feels very little pain about ungodliness in the culture. Doesn't really bother the average Christian that sex has gone wild today like it did back in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we allow this kind of entertainment In our homes, and we watch it with no sorrow. In fact, there are people who laugh over the sitcoms of this kind of thing. And there are far too many men in Christian churches who are on porn, and they have no sorrow of heart about that. And very few of us are shocked and dismayed by the decadent level of the ungodliness in our world. And God said, when I move, I will rescue the lots and the Noahs, the righteous people among the church. I wouldn't want to be Hugh Hefner. Do you realize what he's done in 60 years in this land? He has made immorality mainstream and so palatable that you can look into a selection of what magazines you want to order and you can order Time Magazine and Newsweek and Playboy just like they're equal magazines and nobody is crying foul about that. Hear me, God doesn't rescue those who don't feel the same way he does about sin. God doesn't rescue those who in the church sin like the rest of the world around them. It says that God wants us to be different from this world and even grieve over the sin of the world. And God rescues those who don't participate in the fruitful unfruitful deeds of darkness. And he rescues those who are endeavoring to be holy like he is holy. And he rescues those who are sick about the deepening sin in our society. That's the third factor that is introduced. When God deals with sin, he then takes action not only against the sin, but those who are righteous, those who are godly. We'll say, how does he do that? I don't know how he does, but I can tell you this. God says, I'm going to bring a flood. Noah, I'll send you an ark. Noah never never heard of rain before but God did it for him. And Lot said God said get out of there and how did he get out of there? He sent angels. God always knows how to protect us and help us out of those kinds of situations. And God's rescue is available to anyone who'd rather serve God than succumb to sin. And so P- through Peter God is saying in this section, I will judge the wicked and false teachers. If you want to be rescued from that, be godly in your behavior. And like Noah and like Lot before you, I will rescue you too. Trust me. And so, as I close, you need to know that false teachers hang out in the church. They're doomed for punishment. But those who live above the of sin that's around us and those who try to, to live a godly life before him in the power of the Spirit, Not only will God deal with poisonous teachers, He will actually rescue you through difficult times. Would you please bow your head with me for a moment? I think this is a time to kind of do some self-examination as we every head bowed, every eye closed. And I ask you a few questions. Are you alert to the reality of false teachers in the church and are you keeping your guard up? And are you living a life of godliness that's uniquely distinct from the ungodliness of the world around you? In fact, do you think God would rescue you or would he pass you by? Take some serious moments with God right now in the silence of this moment and be introspective before him. Ask yourself a few hard questions. Father, I'm so grateful for the reality and the truth of the Word of God that Peter would address hard hard situations so clearly and so directly. And so I pray that as we examine our own hearts, that we would not only keep our guard up to false doctrine that's around us today, but that we would guard our hearts from the ungodliness that prevails in our society today. Because the text says in verse 9 that God knows how to rescue the godly from judgment. And from trials. and so I pray, Father, that you would instill in us that desire to walk with you to the point not only are we becoming more like you, but that our hearts are distressed over the sin around us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So how do you end something like this? It's been a hard sermon. Well, it could go on a downer and say, whoa, things are really bad. I'd rather go this way. God has the power to rescue and he will Our God will deliver the righteous. Isn't that good news? So let's celebrate the power of God to deliver the righteous from trials. Would you stand as we sing? We will fear no evil